G'day. Welcome to Radio Notes. I'm John Merch, the producer and host of. This episode, our feature guest is a CEO under 30 of a publishing company, Ash Davies. Speaking of those under 30, in fact early 20s, Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald are two Melbourne journalists who produce and host Shameless, a weekly podcast the two are currently doing as their main gig, and covering pop culture with a sharp view. Rather than the hot takes, they do their research. You'll never look at your social media feed the same, and Zara's look on women in radio of late was so spot on. I wanted to mention them, not only because they're smart, in a good way, but they're also an indie podcast, so it's been quite the inspiration for me in these early stages of this podcast you're currently listening to. And, drumroll please, they're doing live shows from March 2019. That's Shameless Podcast. As for the one you're currently listening to, thank you very much for the feedback, particularly from those listening via the wireless, the AM, FM and digital, right across the world. It's been quite inspiring, informative, and also giving me a bit of insight of where we go from here. And been wonderful to hear the kind of music that you've been picking from the artists that we've been speaking to. Today, the tables are turned, so those in music talking about life now becomes those in life talking about music, with our very special guest getting into some, well, you'll find out. In the box. Time to see what's been sent in in the last couple of days. Thelma Plum, Not Angry Anymore, is out through Warner Music with the official music video directed by Her Sound, Her Stories, Claudia San Giorgi. Dalmore, debut LP is due later this year and it's starring Wilbur the Dog. Brush Your Hair from Sacred Paws. Out through Action Records, the duo based out of Glasgow, formed back in 2014, producing true pop gems. While Brush Your Hair is their latest, their 2017 LP, Strike a Match, is worth a discovery too. And one more for this episode in the In The Box. Today I'm Staying Home, states Thomas Keating, about what they say is their introverted new single, covering the reasons that unable to face the day and other feels. More details on these three in the episode show notes, radionotespodcast.com. Radio Notes Discoveries. Notable releases that have gone past my desk in the last couple of days. Laura Clare's Lost 2-track finally has been released. They've tested the musical waters under some other names, but this is the debut under their own, with some fine cuts produced in the LA, two cuts, On My Way and Primal. Tasmanian-born, who once said on national TV, fitting for today's episode... Tassie's biggest export is its youth. And in this case, it's very true. Oh Family by Jen Grant was originally recorded for the TV show Workin' Moms. Now has been released as a single to the public. Jen with two N's has produced six albums with the latest called a Work of a Painter Born in Paradise by the Sydney Morning Herald. Finally, not least this week, Hold Yourself Together from Brisbane-based Asher Jeffries, their debut EP that took so long to do as they decided to value honesty over everything else, they say. And they continued to state, dripping in subconscious truths. That's the brand new one, a debut EP, in fact, from Asher Jeffries. That's some of the discoveries that have come across my desk this week. If you've got something that's new that I should know about, radionotes at writeme.com. Time now to hear from our feature guest. Ashley Davies was a teenager that wanted to publish his own book. When it appeared it was not going to be easy to do, he created a publishing platform, a few years later making Forbes 30 Under 30. 
As for the platform, it became Tableau, self-publishing venture with social and online profiles for authors. In the last year, Tableau has gone to also now include physical books, available through 40,000 retailers, they say, with authors in over 150 countries. During Radio Notes' tour of Melbourne, John dropped past Tableau HQ to chat with the CEO and founder, Ash Davies. Ash, welcome to Radio Notes. Thank you very much. Elon Musk Air Freshener. It's strange because I've, I've been working for years in books and I put out a, an air freshener company that's related to Elon Musk and that's become my legacy. That's what everyone now talks about. So mm. I'm just riding that wave of viral success. I'm getting out of the way first up. It's fantastic. And I have air fresheners here. I assume that's the main reason you're here is to pick up free swag. Wow. Yeah, uh, at least two. Fantastic. He has become a little unhot of late in 2018. We're recording late June. He might get back up there again. He could do. He's a phenomenal guy. I'm a, I'm a big fan of his work and becoming a fan of his Twitter as he you know tones down the craziness a little bit. But my brother and I had this idea in October of last year. Uh, it all happened super quickly. The elevator pitch is we make a brand of air freshener called Elon's Musk that smells like actual musk. Stupid idea. I'm surprised no one else did it. It's worked very well. We came up with the idea over a weekend. There yeah. may have been a beer involved. We were joking about the pun of his last name and decided, well, we have to make an air fresher out of this. I was actually working on a little side project myself at the same time of selling little, or rather designing and, and having produced little uh, air freshers for cars that look like emojis. You know, the small face, the, the eggplant, the little thing with the, the monkey in the eyes. So I had a bit of that infrastructure set up to have air freshness printed. And as soon as we realized that you know, Elon's last name sounded like a pun. We thought, let's make an Elon's Musk air freshener. Got the design done on Fiverr, cost $5, put up a website over the weekend, sent out a tweet, really just to test if the idea would work. It was a very slapdash idea. And I thought, well, if someone buys it, then we'll get some printed. I went to bed at 12 o'clock on that Thursday, we'd sold two. I was like, wow, people are buying these things. Woke up at about 4 a.m. I'm scrolling through my phone. We've got about 80 sales. Okay, what time did you get? 4 o'clock. 4 o'clock. So that's just after lunch in Canada, for example. Yeah. Uh, we sold about 80 in a few hours with a tweet. And I was looking through my Twitter and my inbox, looking at analytics, work at where these sales had come from. And it turns out one of the editors of CNET was following me. They'd written up an article. From there, it went to Mashable, then Top Gear, then Jalopnik. So it went viral pretty quickly and unexpectedly. We'd sold 1,000 by that Sunday, and we had printed and smelt zero. So we thought, Christ, we've got to get this thing up and running and just printed a huge number of them. And that's been our, our side project in our little business since. What is it about Elon Musk for you, Ash, in terms of a business person? Let's look at that business aspect of Elon yeah. Musk, because obviously there are some, if not parallels, there's some orbits happening there. Well, there's a guy who can look at a really complicated problem and digest it into something very, very simple. He focuses on product. He speaks very simply about solutions. And he just gets a lot of stuff done. So he, he's probably, what I love about Elon is, you know, you can think about the Edisons and the Steve Jobs. This mm -hmm. is a figure of that scale who's still alive and with us and still doing some of his best work. So that's exciting just to follow as a fan. And, you know, I'm a, a big fan of his products. Simplicity and getting the job done yeah. is somewhere where you've come from to get where you are now as being one of the 30 under 30 for Forbes, which is just outstanding. Well, thank you. I started Tableau when I was 19 or 20. I was writing a book, uh, was so used to the, the experience of blogging where you could just write something and click publish and you'd have mm -hmm. a blog and expected the world of publishing a book to be very similar where you could write your book and click publish and have a book but it was far more complicated. And you're exactly right. It was a, a process of looking to make something simple that should be simple. And it's one of those paradoxes where 
you can spend years working really hard to make something seem like it was very obvious. And that's what Tableau has been. It's a platform where you can write something, click a publish button, and you get a paperback book in nearly every bookshop in the world. This has really, in the last couple of months of 2018, yeah. become even more of a reality. Obviously, it's always been for you within the circle of what you were doing, but to have things like Amazon Prime and, and other organizations basically reintroducing the written word on page. On paper. That's the crazy thing. We've got paper books. There's no pinch to zoom. There's no double tap for a definition. It's real paper novels. And that's the real growth area for books at the moment. Sounds strange because that's a 100,000-year-old industry. But you can write something online, click a publish button, and you can be in Adelaide, you can be in Brooklyn, you can go down to your closest Barnes & Noble, or you can go into Amazon, and it's listed as in stock. You can click buy, it's printed at the closest facility, it's shipped right away. So it's digital publishing at its absolute best where the result is paper in every bookshop. So for authors, it's as simple as publishing a blog, but a real book. We've got some here. I know it's, I know it's stupid to show a Audio, demo. Yeah. I was having a look one in the weight room downstairs of, of where this uh, office is based and it was just so tactile and so of what I expected from a publication and this was one that you can write in as well with your thoughts about the day and those kind of things yeah that was uh, today's perfect by, by Ren Butler I think that book downstairs was so we're building up our own little library in the office and it's a it's a really fun experience like we, did, we got a box of books arrived today of books that were published in the past few weeks and that's like Christmas to me it's unpacking the box looking through these books that authors have published but the remarkable thing about the network we've built for any of these books that you're looking at here is it possibly they could be the only book that exists in the world one copy is there no inventory at all but you can buy them from nearly 40,000 retailers and it's all around the world so that's a, a remarkable kind of sense of magic to know these books are globally available but they don't exist the partner of Weedus Gabrielle her band is releasing one-off seven inches of live performances mm. so we are getting back to the macro in terms of people if you only want one or two copies it can be done how has this disruption, as some people would call it, been responded to by the wider publishing world? How, how are some of the hardy grants of the world feeling? It's a good question. Uh, we're mostly focusing on the independent author space, but more and more we do have authors coming up through Tableau that are doing very well, having a lot of reads, uh, and, and we can see and understand the metrics of their books as well, and we can see how engaged their readership is online. And they're then going on to be signed to publishers, or they're receiving agency contracts. So this is very much a, a modern publishing model because mm -hmm. it's open to everyone. You can publish while you're writing. We can then learn and see what books are going to be the next bestsellers. So there has been a reaction from some of the bigger publishing companies to look at products like Tableau as ways to find new authors. But truthfully, they're gonna move very slowly. Traditional publishing is a very slow and archaic industry. They probably won't understand the true potential behind a model like Tableau until we are at their scale, and then they'll look to react. I'll let people discover themselves what the company does and what they're about, costs, engagement, and those kind of things, because Ash Davis is our special guest on Radio Notes. I want to talk to you about music, but the great place to enter that music when you're talking about tactile books is that of vinyl and the yeah. resurgence of vinyl. Have you got on board with that? Have you always been there with vinyl, the record? Only through nostalgic records that my dad plays so I was you know born in the mid 90s when it was all about CDs so I didn't even have the the vinyl or the tape era I don't have a record player I have an Apple music subscription so I'm probably not in the, mm -hmm. the nostalgic character of, of, of old vinyl records but I do like paper books uh, 
in that way understand the, the value of having something to hold and a proper LP. I mean, what, what more of a beautiful way could there be to hold a song? What has your experience of music been? Obviously, your father's records, as you mentioned just then, may have got into your vernac. But what music did you grow up with? Uh, well, I could tell you my first CD was from a boy band called Five. Terrible. I was around the five-year-old demographic at the time, so that's probably not the best one to, to bring up. But music is a huge part of my life. Beyond Books is probably the biggest part of my life. I don't know who said it. In memory, everything happens to music. Mm. And that's kind of how my life has been brought up. It's songs at different times. You could go through my recently played songs and it's a total variety mm-hmm. from the new Yeezy to old Coldplay and Elbow or Ludovic Einaudi, the pianist. So it's, it's mixed. But I just love the idea of being able to listen to something that puts you back in a time and a place and makes you think differently. So when you were five, it was five? It was five. Fair enough. That's where it was at the time. That rhymes, don't like that, but hey. That was a rap. What was some of the music that then sort of educated you? Because you've already said that it's important, but what was educating you through those teenage years? The first album that I really fell in love with was A Rush of Blood to the Head by Coldplay, which Mm -hmm. I think was early 2000, around 2002, 2003. But my dad is English. He was over there and he he found this new album called Coldplay and brought it back. And I kind of became obsessed with it. That was the the album that I still listen to today because it, it grounds me and you can learn to music and you can interpret your own things from it from there it grew to other english bands like elbow there was a lot of cold chisel at that time as well rock and australian music thrown into that as well but those are really the the bands that i was growing let's up talk with. about coldplay what it is about chris martin's writing or, or is it even about his songwriting and is more about the band themselves a lot of it is his songwriting a lot of it is his openness to think through music and how he writes kind of like a diary. I learn a lot about how I think when I listen to different Coldplay songs. I know that Coldplay as a group is very polarizing. Some people love it, some people think it's the worst music that's ever been written. For me, it has been a huge part of how I've grown up and it's still a huge part of how I think. And that's really down to the the simplicity of the the poetry that Chris Martin can write that can be a, a perspective of his own life and things that he's going through and you can interpret that and, and read what you want into it, but it always helps me grow. Ash, talk to us about that. How does it help you think? That's a, a hell of a good question. It probably needs to be done over a couple of wines rather than some waters, I think, to, to really go into that. But it's about uh, love and life and romance and, and hard work and uh, kind of pulling yourself out of harder places. And every album is like a little story. You, you take one like... Uh, from a rush of blood to the head or something uh, like the ghost stories album they have the euphoria with avici there they have uh, a whole little journey within each album Mm -hmm. that can help you think when things are high and low and and really work through that how did you feel about avici's passing that was a sad moment for someone so young and for you personally did it affect you uh probably not on the scale that it might have affected someone else but yeah anytime a a real talent passes it's a you look at the body of work and you, you can be sad that maybe you don't get any more but grateful for what they've done as well mm. you have real i'm not going to look at you while i say this because it <laughs> could be taken the too. wrong way yeah you have really good fingers for a pianist <laughs> uh, you were on a play me i'm yours piano oh man you've been looking at my instagram i saw the image without the sound and then i saw the fingers moving fast and i don't know he's just he's just fart assing around <laughs> so i turned the sound on and had a oh, hello yeah 
Yeah, I, so I know the video. That was Ludovic Ainaudi. Yeah, and you name dropped him before, mm. as one would, you know, if you're going to name drop a musician. Yeah. Like go for that composer musician. Uh, talk to us about the piano. Obviously, started young. Uh, no, I, I started when I was old. No musical training or, or real experience or skill in that. I'm self taught. Uh, I can't read music. I just fall in love with certain songs and then riff and want to learn how to play them and the only way I can really describe learning the piano on my own is that we've all learned how to touch type and we can scatter our fingers across a keyboard pretty quickly so if, if you just put that to a piano and, and really love the music you can eventually figure that out as well. Where were you seated when you started teaching yourself that though? I was probably uh, late teens. Accessibility to an instrument like a piano yeah. to get those skills even if you do teach yourself. Yeah. Well, my grandmother was a, a bit of a musician as well. She played the piano. She was self-taught. She couldn't read music. So I knew that there was something in the family that made that possible. But I remember trying to play when, when she was still around mm -hmm. and remember the music she used to play throughout the house. But for the piano, it was really, I just had to buy a little keyboard and start learning. And it started off terrible, but within a couple of months, I was picking up a few songs. And if there's a song that I love, I'll just try and learn how to play it. And then that's a great little party trick when there's a piano in the room. What drives you? I just love making stuff and putting it out there into the world. And I know that sounds simplistic, but that's, you know, I didn't start business because I wanted to make a business. I just love making products and I thought, why not make something that other people can use and go on that creative journey of improving something and building it. And it's the same with projects like Elon or, or playing a piano. Mm. It's, I just love trying stuff, learning by doing and, and getting things done. It's the same reason people paint. It's just for me, it's business. Who's been your greatest support during that? It's been my dad, yeah. without a question. He knows 10 times more than I'll ever know in business. I've, I've come from a bit of a business background. And it started with my granddad, who started the family business over 60 years ago in the UK. And then my dad now runs it today. So I've come from a, a family and a, I've grown up in an environment where the conversation around the dinner table is going to be about numbers or product hmm. or jobs or employing someone or, or the gritty details of, of having a company. So that's just the environment that I've been brought up in. You know, just to look at what my dad and my family have done, it's amazing and a, a great privilege to know that I can go and ask him anything and he's probably done it before. And that's been the, the best support network anyone could ask for. Do you find that support drives you to want to help others as well in the products that you're doing through your daily life? Yeah. I mean, I won't profess to being an expert on anything yet because I'm still young and I'm still learning. But at a certain point, I'd love to give some of that back. And when there are new founders, particularly going through the early stages of their business, then I, I do try and learn and think and help as much as I can. Uh, but it's a learning curve for me as well. So I'm probably not ready to teach or, or to have that kind of influence on someone beyond just sharing a story and sharing my own experiences. But someone like Elon, who we've already mentioned as someone within your orbit, it's about also just documenting what you're doing now. Richard Branson was very good in sharing this, that if you just remember what you did back when it was right and you're getting those steps going, that's going to help you later on. Mm. Do you get that vibe that, that you can learn from what you're doing now for later? I think so. I think that I probably do underestimate what I've learned so far. It's that, that thing where if you look at the past three or six months or the past what is it if you'll always underestimate what you can do or overestimate what you can do in a year but yeah. underestimate what you can do in 10 hmm. and I always have this strange little pattern in my journey where if I look at where I am now I feel like I know a lot of the things that I need to know I look at three months ago actually and he was an idiot he didn't know that much mm -hmm. he was still figuring it out in another three months I'm probably going to think that me right now is a bit of an idiot so it's a constant learning curve 
I don't really document. I, I sketch away on books. I am writing a little book along the process of Tableau on Tableau, just something that I keep private. Just that sounds a, very meta, doesn't it? It, it is a little yeah. strange to, to do that, but I, I kind of branch it off as Write a testing. book on your own platform. It's pretty cool, actually, isn't it? <laughs> but it's, it's just a way for me to process. Because I, I, when I write, I learn. And sometimes that's just a great expression to figure out what you're thinking. At the same time, it's also a little too crazy at the moment to really think about reflecting. I'm at the moment thinking a lot about the next stage of the business right? and trying to pull my head out of the dirt and look a little more into the clouds and think, right, what's our next round of funding, our next hires, our next product development look like? And, and that's taking up about 110% of my mental capacity at the moment. So one of the interesting things about the work I get to do, it's not laborious in the sense that I'm in the office for 12 hours just constantly working through things mm -hmm. but it takes over your life and your mental capacity and your creative capacity you go to sleep thinking about it you have dreams about it you wake up you're still thinking about it and in that respect you can never switch off but there have been challenges that particularly in the past few months have cropped up that to be honest I kind of enjoy if there's something going wrong I see that as a little opportunity to prove myself hmm. it's like getting a bad hand of cards in poker and thinking right how do i win this one and business is a lot of that but how do you reward yourself i don't do that enough uh, i don't take a lot of time off but mm -hmm. the product itself is really rewarding and that's really why i do it i do it for the product and for i know it sounds stupid and it sounds like a thing that you'd have on a customer service page but i do it because people really like to use the product and that itself is the reward but you know, I've been taught by a few mentors that you've got to take moments to, to reflect and think mm -hmm. about where you are and enjoy those little wins and celebrate those moments. Is that also where charity fits in for you? A little. It's a, a way to stay a little grounded and a way to open up your, your mind a little and, and mm -hmm. think about things that aren't work uh, because there's a lot of privilege that comes with having a company mm -hmm. and being in a position like this that at a certain point I'll be able to hopefully give back uh, a lot more with but right now it's just you know keeping an open mind to it brain cancer how does that fit in what's the story there that one's close to home yeah that's through a, a close friend who's been affected by that uh, over recent years that's been a, a learning curve for a lot of people very traumatic but very grounding and eye-opening it's it's hard uh, when people that you're close with are going through traumas to hmm. see what's good about it and look for positivity but you know, I'm, I'm hoping that that can just teach us all that we need to embrace life and the, make the most of opportunities that we because have. Because the mind of a CEO to a mind of someone who helps someone going through something like that, how do you balance those two worlds? There's no guidebook for it. And what that has taught me is that work is a little meaningless. Uh, as much as we love doing what we're doing, and even though my life is primarily work, that doesn't really matter. Mm. What matters is the people around you and enjoying moments and experiences and, and connecting and communicating. And that's been a, a grounding experience for the whole team and group of people, mm -hmm. uh, my friends, her family, my family, to be going through in our young 20s because it emphasizes the, the fragility of life and why it's so important to make the most of it. So that's a, a lesson that I, I'm hoping that we can be really grateful for in decades time i felt that may have been the reason and particularly that narrative what you're currently going through and i acknowledge that very deeply is why 
having something that's tactile in your working environment, something that has a sense of legacy on a shelf. Yeah, uh, digital's ephemeral. Paper yeah. lasts forever. Uh, I've never really thought about it that way, but I can absolutely see what you mean, and, and that's probably why paper works. We're getting back to music, and I want to ask this question of you because I know you're a fan of them. What is the music you play when you're going around in your cars? Because <laughs> there's got to be some banging tunes yeah, or there's something. A, there's a oh man, there's a, a whole mix of things. I could drop a pretty good rap to any Drake verse that you you put out there. A little bit of Drake. Oh, you Elon Musk. <laughs> uh, you know, there's everything mm. from Drake to Yeezy. There's old U2. There's talk to me about old U2. I love music that is what I love about any kind of product, whether it's a song or a piece of technology, is that some things you see, you get a very good understanding of the people who made it and what they were trying to achieve. And with anything, if you can see that and feel that, I, I fall in love with it and I can appreciate it. And it's the same for a, an, an old song by U2, just hearing the emotion in that versus hearing a, a rap battle with Drake. You can tell why they're doing something and that to me is as important as the, the melody and the beats your favorite u2 possibly old album uh album i don't know i at the moment i'm obsessed with where the streets have no name because right. that's just a, a, an extraordinary build-up joshua treat i've been watching uh, yeah i've been watching a couple of old live performances as well and just feeling the energy in that room recently just to share was watching just bono on the edge sitting on the david letterman couch next to him just bashing out a few numbers, just not even on the big stage, just sitting there. That I would love to see. What is it about these cars? Which car or why cars? Why cars? I have grown up around cars. That is in my blood. The childhood smell to me is petrol in a room. It just takes me back to that kind of leather fueled, fuel filled space. And I love driving and racing. It's one of the places where I feel absolutely at home where there's nothing else on your mind, nothing else to think about, but particularly on a racetrack, mm -hmm. going as quickly as you can. And there's that paradox of driving very, very quickly towards a wall with a braking zone and you're trying to brake a click later and being so meat-fisted and aggressive in how quickly you're driving, but also delicate enough to think about tire pressure and to think about the temperature of the brakes. Mm -hmm. And that combination of aggression and delicacies takes over your mind you don't think about anything else at that time which is a beautiful moment to hold what's your favorite time on the track on the track is probably some of my my favorite driving times probably was my old mini cooper on a, a racetrack like sandown or or phillip island where you're not going too quickly it's your first time learning i was probably young and foolish enough to be making mistakes one of my favorite moments was when i had a tire blowout at the the end of the main straight at phillip island in my old mini and that was my road car and I had to eventually find a way to drive that home but it was just in a reasonably safe environment pushing yourself over that limit and learning okay this is the limit and then you take a step back and that's a, a great way to learn probably the the best albeit arguably the worst driving experience was after a, a race I did up at Winton about three hours away uh, and I, I completely cooked my brakes to the point where it was metal caliper rubbing on the metal disc and I came off the track and I could hear a just by going in a straight line and I then had to drive my road car three hours back to Melbourne effectively sparks coming off the wheels anytime I tried to slow down I was in a convoy of four other cars who would keep the road pretty clean in front of me so that I could use my handbrake if needed 
and it was, so, there was so much damage done to my car at that point. All the little metallic flakes that came off of the brake discs ended up embedded in the paint. Then it rained on the way home and my car was covered in thousands of shards of little bits of rust. That sounds like fun. It was bad, but it was one of my best driving experiences because it was just a, a, a crazy moment between friends. And that was a Mini Coupe as mini well. Mini Coupe, yeah. Yeah. Nothing too expensive ish Well, it, I ended up cleaning it up, but I had to polish the car with a scour that I okay. found under the sink. So it looked fine at the end for a, a few days of you know, aggressive cleaning, but that was a lot of fun. I didn't enjoy it so much at the time, but in hindsight, that was, that was pretty cool. As someone who takes music into their life, and as you said, it's part of a narrative, live music, been there, done that, what's grabbed you? I still love it. Uh, I had a, a terrible phase a few months ago where I just spent all my money on live music tickets and traveled around and saw a bunch of bands. And can we talk about that, please? We can. I've got to stop doing this because it, it's, it's making my bank account look pretty terrible. But yeah, I, I was out seeing Drake, J. Cole, I was obsessed with his his writing, his his poetry, and the learnings of of different kinds of communities. From there, it's also been groups like Coldplay. I know I keep talking about yeah, them. Yeah. Elbow, still one of the best. I get the feeling you just want to meet Chris Martin, then your oh, life's man, that, done. That would make my life. Well, that would make my life. Do you know Elbow? Uh, other Manchester. I do know band. Elbow. Yeah, still one of the best live performances I've ever been to. You know, hearing Guy Garvey belt out the loneliness of a tower crane driver while everyone's just sitting there with a couple of beers was still one of the best music experiences I've had. Festival vibe you go for or is it strictly about the performer and you as the audience member? A little bit of the combination because you do go to see the talent but you also go to feel the energy of the room and as with anything whether you're seeing a comedian or a musician you don't remember the details but you remember how you felt Mm. and for music that's it for me that's why I I still love a live performance because you get that memory and that elation of being with a bunch of other people who are into the same thing as you and you you can take that memory with you forever how do you see us moving forward engaging with community because you obviously have a passion for it you have a vehicle to do it through we've spoken about live music but where do you see the sense of engagement with community because i'm not sure if online's really cutting it no it isn't and uh, we're going through a lot of change at the moment uh, in a lot of creative industries, whether it is books or music or television. And I think we will still keep going through that period of change for the next five years. The biggest challenge with it is business model. It's making money from the things that you create and share. And I think people are, and it's the same as the music industry, you know, CDs are no longer the real moneymaker. It's touring and live performing. Mm. It's creating that real experience and, and monetizing that, which is such a great sensible business model uh, but it's taking a lot of people a lot of time to figure out how to make it work at scale and I don't really know where the industry is going to be going for, for those kinds of creative industries because it, it, it will definitely be direct to consumer uh, discovery is going to be harder than ever your photo guides we've been looking at the visual element and how to effectively engage the visual through whatever means with a community yeah well I started in the blogging world when I was 16, I started a blog called Photo Guides. Yep. I wanted to learn about photography and also create something. So I, I put together a blog called Photo Guides. I would go out, pick a topic on my camera, take a bunch of photos, write up a tutorial and post it online. And over a bit of time and through a lot of hard work and through a lot of great ideas and having a, a couple of people working with me there as well, we did build one of the best photography resources online. Mm. 
we had podcasts, we had uh, YouTube tutorials and, and video tutorials. So we we're quite leading edge to be pushing in the podcast space and the YouTube space about eight or nine years ago. That was just a fun project. I had no real intentions for that. It was just make something and put it out there and enjoy it. You did see or at least feel the sense of community though through that? I did. And there are still great friends that I have from that era. Uh, either people who followed online and, and still follow Tableau on my own business journey now. Or people that I used to work with and write who I'm now close friends with. Uh, but it was a remarkable insight to me as someone who was still at high school and was just in a group of 40 or 50 people at school. The fact that I could write something and share it and people all around the world would read it and there would mm -hmm. be people in you know, uh, Mississippi to London reading and engaging and, and using that content and sending me emails was, uh, it, it really opened up the ideas of what was possible. What was the art of photography about for you though then and now? It's just about trying and taking a bunch of photos and you, again you'll you look back at six months ago you and think those are terrible but the photos you make today are great. And that's a constant experience. So I, I'm less using, uh, I'm not using a real camera as much these days. Most of it's on an iPhone hmm. because it's what I already have there. But there's a, a, a wonderful experience. The word is, it's a, fr a French word, Ulipian, that suggests that, you know, that there is great creativity that can be found when you have restraints. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those restraints can be your freedom. And having just a little phone with a terrible little screen or camera, they're getting pretty good. That's a, a great way to think, right, what can I make of this? What can I create that people like and share? And I take a lot of interest in that. I don't think you need the most expensive equipment. I just think you need to get out there and explore. And you know, it, it's a good excuse to go and travel and, and meet new people and explore new places. And I do just think that photography is a great little way to push yourself to see more things and document them. Taking you back to music, and we've mentioned a lot about bands, but I wanna ask about songs. What songs have got you through? In particular, what song will be when you're laid to rest? Yeah, uh, man, that's a, a light topic. There's a, mm. a, a song called Grace Under Pressure by Elbow, which is the song that I go to whenever I am going through something tough that I need to figure out. And that's just a great, simple poem by Guy Garvey there that's, well, Grace Under Pressure, the, the words are, are, are beautiful. And if you can be under immense pressure but still act with grace, then I think that's a a mindset that we can all strive to. Otherwise, it's probably something more by Kanye West that I'd want to mm -hmm. be laid to rest with, and that'd be more fun. What music do you wake up to? What music do you like doing your work to? What music calls it a day for you? You've touched on there the emotional type, but, but morning, work, night. Yeah. I start the day with a little bit of Drake. I've got to say, that's the, mm -hmm. the anthem to the morning. I'm still going back to the... Well, his More Life album's pretty good. There are a couple of songs there which... Uh, it, it fills you with confidence. A great way to kick yourself into action. Otherwise, when it comes to thinking music, I love listening to things that are new. I, I'll usually just put on Beats 1. Or I'll just put on a, a, a radio station there and just see what else is out there. But at the moment, it's a lot of rap, a lot of R&B, a lot of hip-hop that, that, that gets me feeling pretty good. Ash, what's the vision without giving away too many trade secrets over the next 10 years, because by then you'll be in your 30s. <laughs> I've already got a, a scattering of gray hairs, so I feel like I'm already there. Of course you do. I got my first one two months ago. <laughs> it's at the moment all with Tableau. That's really the, the vehicle that I'm building my life around. We think a lot about the future of the publishing industry and 
all that we really liken it to is as simple as if you want to make a website or a blog, there's a service out there where you can write something and share that. And the same kind of system should be there for books. Uh, granted, we have that product today in Tableau. We think that this, as a, a, a compounding effect, can become the future publishing company. It can be a, on the scale of a Penguin or a Hachette or a Macmillan, uh, but more open. And anyone can write, anyone can publish, we can discover the best authors, and we can make the next household names uh, through people just wanting to write and share. So we think that that, over the next five to ten years, is going to be the thing that really brings Tableau to be a household name. How does the publishing house fit with censorship? How do you deal with it? How do you fit with it? We think about it a lot nowadays because we realize we have an opportunity or a responsibility to think about that. And it's a very difficult ground for us to cross because part of democratizing publishing means supporting free speech, which we believe in and support greatly. So we will let just about anything be published, but we also do think a lot well what if someone is publishing a book that has its values grounded in the early 1900s like what if there's content that should not be published or a, a message of racism or, or sexism or or something that we don't want to support and we're still having that debate and how does that overlap free speech mm-hmm. that's a very fiery debate it is it can't just be overseen so internally mm. it sounds like there are ongoing conversations about how that fits in yeah how have you been feeling about going through that? And I don't have any examples cited in my head. I'm just thinking about this logically. We're talking about rappers. We're talking about yeah. people that have things to say who use the N-word a lot, for example. What's, what's your view on how you deal with the issues of censorship as an organisation? It's difficult because it's one of those things that's hard to get right. Mm. And you're probably going to get it wrong a few times before you get it right. So we've got to just make little decisions that we think are grounded with the right values i mean i think that a company at the end of the day is made up of people people have values and we have a very forward-thinking team who want to help people share mm-hmm. and we are very young and progressive in our world views that really does reflect itself in the product and in what we do as a business because it's what we think is right and the real challenge that we're working through at the moment is when do you stop someone from publishing something? There's the curation side, which is very straightforward for us, is that, in that you know, if, if someone's publishing a work of fiction and it's a good quality book, you promote it. If it's a bad quality book, that's great for the author to learn and the author can keep writing and promoting. And, and I think that writing as a form of expression and a form of practice is the only way to improve your own writing and write mm-hmm. something better. So we, we let anything be published and then we work to find what books are the best and and bring them to the surface for people to read because there is that difference between an online blog and a tactile in that sense Mm. from memory there is uh, the content is is obviously more long form it's more written to a theme it's generally usually when you, you you look at a book there's that ideology of writing what you know and that's what most people are writing about so if they're writing a book whether it's a crime novel there's usually characters in there that are based on life inspirations and, and things that have happened in their own background. So that's something that we've got to respect. You mentioned yourself that there's a book that's under wraps, which is in the back servers, obviously, that you're working on. How, how far off do you think it will be before we'll see an Ash Davies tableau release? Uh, that's, that's a damn good question. Probably a few years away because mm-hmm. uh, the story's still progressing. It, it's a, an interesting perspective for me to have because... A lot of time on the surface with Tableau, the headlines that we have, the product releases that we have, 
it glorifies the company and glorifies what we do. And we, we, we've done some amazing stuff. But for me, in my mind, it's still going. And we're a few years away from where I think we can be and from reaching our potential. So I don't feel like that story is really finished yet. And that's going to take a few years to get to the point where I feel like it's worth giving back. Do you also get a feeling that because of the stature of CEO, founder, that you might have to do it with a bit of anonymity? Probably. Uh, There's a partly for reasons of confidentiality and things that we've done as a business that have worked or haven't worked. Ah, There are stories that I would love to share because they make up my own business experience, but I legally can't share. So that's going to take a bit of time for me to be allowed to share in full. And you know, if I wanted to share the story of how Tableau got to where it was, I'd need to share everything, but right now I can't. The importance of sharing everything, just like in lyrics, mm-hmm. you take that quite seriously. I think words have a lot of meaning. It probably comes from being in publishing, but it's... Yeah, you know, I, I try really hard to think about ideas and I internalize a lot of it. And that's so that I can figure out what I'm thinking and figure out what to do next, whether it's in life or in product. And I think that words are the most important thing that we have uh, because it's, it's communicating with people ultimately. And sometimes I just want to get an idea really right before I share it. You're currently based here in Melbourne in uh, Victoria, Australia. Do you think this is the future headquarters for such a venture? Are you feeling comfortable or would you prefer to move up to something better like Adelaide or New York? <laughs> well, I, we, we have an office in Adelaide, not too far from you, and I, I probably get there not as much as I should. Melbourne is a great city to be building something like this in, because mainly because we have better coffee. You know, no, you don't. That's a, another debate we can have. Yeah, uh, but we, we see a bit of a future in, in the US. There are some plans underway at the moment about what we're going to be doing there. Have you looked across to the US and, and got a sense that they really aren't doing what you've got planned for the future? Do you think it, it is groundbreaking? And I hope the answer is yes. The, the product is groundbreaking, where people are generally surprised when they know that we're a little Australian company because they imagine that we've just got a dozen offices throughout the United States. I think that in order to take this to the world, we do need to have a presence over there. So we're currently looking at setting up a, a New York office and we're taking those plans very seriously. And hopefully by the time this is out, Yep. We'll have actioned some of those plans. In 2019, yeah. That's part of the plan for growth for us. There's also a mindset shift between Australia and between the US that I've noticed a lot. There is a, a ceiling in Australia for companies and technology. Part of it is tall poppy syndrome because oftentimes when you're doing something really good, mm. uh, that's really where people start to try and ground you and bring you down. But that's when you know you're doing something right. Yeah, and we've got a really lift our game and, and, and do a little better at that point. So we're thinking a lot about the US mindset. A lot of the partners and the people that we, we know and we have worked with over there will take an idea and see what we've done so far as the potential and they'll try and get us to that next stage. So I think that a big part of our journey, if we want to take on the publishing industry and shift this space for everyone, have a bit of a global presence. What are you going to do for your 30th? <laughs> And I think it's going to involve putting on a bit of Drake and getting in a car. That seems like the the best kind of birthday. I don't even know where I'm going to be in the world when I'm 30. You know, I'm I'm more about small things. And so if I'm just surrounded by good people and I'm I'm somewhere interesting and I'm surrounded by people that I I like and love, then that's really 
all I want to be targeting for those kinds of years. You're massively fascinating. Thanks very much for your time, Ash. Thank you. Ashley Davies, CEO and founder of Tableau, and also one of the minds behind Elon's Musk, speaking to John while in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, tableau.io. As for Drake, he has seven 2019 Grammy nominations. For the record, I did not leave Tableau HQ with any air fresheners, as I don't drive a car, and that's where they look their best. Elon Musk's latest tweet from earlier today, how Model 3 performs on a long road trip. This is from Insider VS. He tweeted, how Tesla's cracked the code on EV road trips Model 3 performance, an article from Bradley Berman. A big battery plus the supercharger network equals a car capable of long-haul travel, they report, and continue to say, I have a confession to make. Full details are available in that report. Speaking about a bit of a ride, the last couple of days have been, to go into details or break some confidences, and I won't do that, what I will share with you is Dan McGann is a great guy. And when he does covers, he doesn't just do any old covers. He did Robin previously for one of his releases, and now he's dived into the archives of R.E.M. to do a version of their classic, Losing My Religion, which appears in the trailer for a new TV series, Unspeakable, which he's also scored. To quote Mangan, When I was a kid, R.E.M. was a staple in my household. I remember air guitaring to this song with my brother and sister. It was such a massive hit, but also so unlikely a candidate to be so. The chorus isn't really a chorus. He continues to say, there's no point in attempting to sing like Michael Stipe. There is only one Michael Stipe. That's uh, Dan McGann's new version that he's done of the song Losing My Religion. I'll give you some details in the show notes. Speaking about covers, a cover of The Cranberries, We Need to Argue, has been done by Hannah Georgias. And this is part of a new release called Imprints, a four-song EP made of covers by influential women in life. It's set to be released on March the 8th in full, part of International Women's Day. And the record features music by the Cranberries, as I mentioned, a cover thereof. Eurythmics, Janet Jackson and Tegan and Sarah. A number of special guests have come on board as well. The song that you can find at the moment, though, is the Cranberries cover with Lucius. And it's called No Need to Argue by Hannah George. Also, brand new Broken Social Scene is out, and Strongbow had the exclusive on a couple of tracks from that. New song from them is called All I Want. It's off an album called Let's Try the After Volume 1 is out on February the 15th. A little birdie tells me that's also the date that Christopher Sprake will have a brand new release as well. More details in coming episodes. Just having a look at some new releases and have a little bit more time left. Lola Scott, emerging from the southern highlands of New South Wales, serves up a unique brand, they say, of dogmatic dark indie Pop. Let me repeat those words to you. Dogmatic, dark, indie pop. And the following performances at the Falls, the multi-instrument with a degree in guitar, and also a huge respect for synth, has today shared their second single called Warzone on the Suburbs. There's an album from a band called Tender called Fear of Falling Asleep, which has been on my like notepad to share with you since episode one. I will give you some details of that. It's available through Bandcamp online uh, have a listen you may well enjoy it tiny ruins is the other one that i have in mind out through milk records olympic girls has just been released this is the full length album by tiny ruins i think that covers everything that i've scratched down on the notepad let's now go off the charts time to dive into the official aria that's the australian recording industry association charts to see what's landed where in the last week 
Albums new in at number one, Bring Me the Ryzen, AMO. At five, the Backstreet Boys back with DNA new to the charts. Ocean Valley re-enter at 11. As for Drake, he's down to 12. In Excess, Very Best Of jumps to 24. And Weezer, Teal Album, squeezes in at 49 in the top 50. Singles, Seven Rings, Aria Grande holds in the number one spot. Australian singles, after topping the youth poll on the weekend, Confidence by Ocean Alley is number one. Re-entering at 20, Horses by Daryl Braithwaite, with Amy Shark's I Said Hi in the middle at number 10. That's some of the charts for this week here on Radio Notes. few more minutes left to share with you. I thought I'd head in the archives because here in Adelaide, South Australia, where the episode is produced, we've started Fab Feb, which will be quickly followed by Mad March, which is a month where we cram all our arts and cultural events, it seems, into one month. A few years ago, I caught up with the CEO and director of the Adelaide Fringe, Heather Kral. Just popping through one of the venues here at the Adelaide Fringe and I saw some pink hair. There's a lot of pink hair. Heather Kral, hello. Hello. Uh, I'm at Fancy Meeting You here. I'll just like confirm that I was about to sit down, have a lovely glass of wine with a team and you hunt, you zoomed in, but I'm very happy you did. We love it, a spontaneous moment in the Fringe. It's, okay, I'll be candid. It's Thursday night. You've got a couple of days left of this baby. Yeah. How's the pregnancy been? <laughs> We've had uh, a bit of morning sickness and a few pains along the way. But to be honest, look at it. It's just been amazing. The growth of the Fringe this year is phenomenal. We expected no growth. If really honest, we did not expect ticket growth this year because last year we experienced 20% growth and we thought, well, surely, you know, we can't grow every year, you know. Last year we got, uh, we did sell over half a million tickets and don't forget the income from the tickets is what goes to the artists. I mean, the artists do the deals with their venues and that ticket income covers the cost of the venues and the artists. That goes straight to the artists and the venues. That's how it works. And so last year we gave, um, you know, over $10 million to artists uh, for their income from the box office and this year you know looking to do more so last year we sold over half a million tickets which is phenomenal there's no other arts festival in the southern hemisphere that does that and this year we're looking like selling 600,000 the amazing thing is we've launched into the figures the selling which is great but I want to talk about fringe with you is that okay in in terms of the experience of yeah yeah What's been your sense of Fringe this year, at the acts you've seen and the the chances that they've taken? Mm. Well, I think that Fringe feels even more inclusive than ever this year. Like, here we are, we're standing here in Gluttony, and have a look who's here. A lot of these people, they've never been to Fringe before. And we've noticed that when people buy tickets, we know if they're previous customers because they have to fill in the name and the form and stuff. And more than ever, we've got more new customers than ever before this year. That is so exciting. So we have some somehow gotten through to people that have never been to Fringe and we love that. The way Fringe works, as you know, we don't curate anything. Um, The artists find their own venues, they match make themselves to venues, they do a deal with the venue and then we are, you know, their ticket platform and um, we overall, you know, sell the Fringe to people. But in the end, it's all about how much promotion does the artist do and the venue do. The risk is all on the artist in the venue. Now, the risk on those pe- that those people take is phenomenal. And I just tip my hat to all of them who do that. Because if they get it right, they walk away with some great audience memories. They might even walk away, hopefully, with some money. But 
the other thing that happens in the Adelaide Fringe, and you might not, you know, you won't recognise them from different people, but there's uh, over a hundred people here walking around in the Adelaide Fringe who are from festivals all over the world, and they are looking to program shows for their festivals. So we've got festival programmers from Canada, France, Germany, Croatia, Sweden. The groundwork for the Edmund and the Edinburghs of the, of That's the right. world. Seconds left. This is a question I should not ask you. What has been your favourite this year? My favourite? You're not going to answer, are you? I, I, um, your favourite act, performer, event happening of the Adelaide Fringe? Oh, my life. I have seen so many brilliant shows. I really, truly have. But one thing that I'm so excited about that we did early on in the Fringe we had never done before was the sunset ceremony with Carl Telfer out the front of the museum with the dancers. It was seriously moving and powerful. And I... I, I think that, um, you know, as, as long as Carl team are willing to do it again, I think it should become an official part of how we open the Adelaide Fringe. We moved the parade to Saturday, so instead we opened with a welcome ceremony from Carl Telfer. There wasn't a dry eye there on the grass of the museum, so I, I, it lives with me. And as much as I've seen 100 brilliant shows, which they're all wonderful, I don't have a favourite show over the other because they're all so different, and I do love them all. What we saw in that opening ceremony was something we'd never done before, and I think we've got to do that again. Heather Carroll, thank you very much Thanks. for your time. Adelaide Fringe CEO and Director, speaking about the senior Ghana ceremony custodian, Carl Tefner. He will be returning for the sunset ceremony during the Adelaide Fringe, but also Garbara Gathering of Light will be running throughout the Adelaide Fringe 2019. One more release before I go this episode. Robert Forrester of The Go-Betweens, you may know him, has released some solo material. In fact, has a new album, their first solo release in four years called Inferno, made in a hot summer in Berlin. Single from it has been titled Inferno Brisbane in Summer. It's now out. You may also like to have a read of Robert Forrester's memoir called Grant and I. Thanks very much for joining us here at Radio Notes. Your feedback's always welcome at radionotes at writeme.com. And if you'd like to listen back to today's episode or any of the episodes, you can go to Spotify. Yep, Radio Notes podcast. You can search on Spotify and follow. Whilst musicians don't get paid enough for being on that platform, in my view, compared to how much they put into their music, I don't get paid at all to do this particular show. So Spotify is a place that you might use and you can find us there if you wish. Thanks very much to our very special guest this week, Ash Davies, the CEO and founder of Tableau Publishing. Radionotespodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Merch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. 